I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas. How do you find the precise language for where you are in the arc of your life? Not your age, that's just a measure of days you've been alive. But whether you are still bending toward bounty or slipping into scarcity. Language can be pretty inadequate in those places. Kate Bullard declares in her new book, I am incurable, I have a durable illness. Sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? Her doctors dance around the specifics of what that means. She and her husband, she tells us, don't use words that might have to be unsaid. But here is something she can say. We live and we are loved and we are gone. Kate Bowler's new book is titled No Cure for Being Human and Other Truths I Need to Hear. And she joins us from North Carolina. Kate, welcome back to the show. It's good to talk to you again. Carrie, thanks so much for having me. Uh, You have done what I think of as a remarkable and very graceful job of working out these contradictions where language really comes up short. I mean, in your preface, you're even wrestling with the word enough, like this life was enough. What is enough? Nothing will add up to enough. And I want to, I really want to understand how you work out these, these contradictions and how you find the language to do that. I'm so glad we're talking about language because I think that is such a precious, that is one of the great gifts we're given is to try to make finer distinctions. Um, I, I'm a historian of positive thinking and self-help and the formulas that we're given in these dominant American ways of speaking are, are usually very sloppy. <laughs> they're like, you can live your best life or, you know, the, the implication is that there's, um, there's a formula for how to get to enough. And I guess that's mm-hmm. where as someone with a shocking cancer diagnosis and as a historian really interested in how we um how we talk about suffering that was exactly where my my brain wanted to try to untangle that knot i guess history is probably full of the kinds of contradictions that you're working out and trying to find ways to explain that things we yeah. thought we understood in the moment right which in retrospect yeah reveal to us a, a somewhat contradictory truth. Well, I love that you're saying it's contradictory because I I think if you look at the good vibes only line at Target, I think we're given only <laughs> one kind of messaging. And the messaging I think we mostly get is um, we are a perfectibility project. We are likely, we are unlimited if we just look to the power within. If you if you, there are ways to make everything add up. You can, you can conquer your inbox and you can find that morning routine and you can get that smoothie. And that we're, I think we're mostly given accounts of ourselves that are, 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 are wildly one-sided. So I, mm-hmm. I always felt, I think part of the reason I started writing these wildly depressing books, just joking. I mean, I try to like bend, just offer like a, a middle ground where you don't want to be the person at the kid's birthday party who's always whispering, we're all going to die. But I have mm-hmm. been hoping for more like a, a gentler place, a place of contradiction at all. 
you know, I, I I thought for a while about what you how you were thinking through the concept of enough, and it is it is a moment. You know, these last eighteen months of the pandemic when people yeah. really had to face their own ideas of yeah. enough. You know, parents who were leaving children behind, nurses who were ministering to the suffering and then catching the disease themselves. And I I wonder if you had a new yeah. perspective on what is enough when we talk about life that you right. might not have had had we not have all endured this. Yes, right. Yeah, because I... At, at first, when I, w- I first got sick, I think I was just struggling through the crisis of it. And I remembered all of those feelings in the early days of the pandemic, which is that there's, it, you know, it's, it's like an apocalypse. There was a sudden before and after and, and where all of our lives are constricted and all of our plans fall away and we're having to redefine how we live. And then this is what I found with my own illnesses and the sort of perpetuity, I think of the pandemic felt the same as, well, but what happens? How do we then move forward with the lives we don't pick? What do we do when it's no longer just a crisis, but it's the, it's the chronic question underneath the problem of enough. So if we have to keep living, what is going to add up? And my formulas for how I imagined, um, A life was supposed to add up were were really ones that I I had had in my pre-cancer days. I, I had like my old version was um I I always wanted to be an academic who had like a just a like a like a turret, you know, and like a lot of wine and cheese functions and like very <laughs> grateful graduate students. And I had this whole plan for like the summation of my life. And it mostly included my hopes for my career and um, a couple kids. And it was, I think enough to me was just, was perpetuity and kind of sl- the slow, the, the, the meeting of small hungers that I would sort of just slowly become full. And then when I realized, oh, wow, like life is very uncertain where we're, things are, our plans fall away so quickly. How do we try to make things more meaningful when there's no good math for how to, either, there's no great checklists. There's no great, um, this plus this equals. Uh, yeah. Cause I, I my, certainly my life, if I measured it that way would, would never add up to enough. Wow. I really appreciate the way you put that. I mean, at one point in the book, you, you say, I found moments of enoughness <sighs> without the promise of more. We are so conditioned. Y- yeah. you've, you've spoken to this to believe that there is more and we deserve more. Yes, and totally. you're in this like <laughs> yes. you're in this like precarious yeah. land of well this might have to be the enough. Right. And I don't have the luxury of going and more stretches out till I can't see you know out into the yeah. limitless horizon. Yes. I cuz for a bit there I I think I was chasing that feeling of infinity. Like, well, what if I just wrapped it up? So I, you know, I got sick. I, then I kept living. So, you know, then I, I found that I, instead of just questioning that sort of tick, tick, tick feeling that I 
that I have so often. Mm-hmm. I just tried to speed up. And I hear it when people are, are trying to figure out how to uh, um, live through this sort of long off-ramp of the pandemic is, well, then I'll just, I'll make up for lost time. I will, as if we can sort of borrow from the future and heap it into the present or, you know, live in the past long enough to to make today feel bearable. And I, uh, I think over-freighting any part of our lives is really complicated. I, I have never found, for instance, like, I mean, the, the most common advice I normally get for how to live like this is we'll just be present. And that's really not terrible advice at all, except that so <laughs> no, often but... the present is awful. I mean, the present is a hospital day and terrible blood work. And I mean, we, you have, we skip around like in a, in a present like that, I have to dip into the past to remember that I am loved and I'm not disposable, that I am more than, than charts and, um, and, and feeling like I'm going to suffocate because I can't possibly cram life into what I'm given. And then in other days, you know, you want to dream a little, you want to stretch out and imagine, oh, isn't, isn't Venice probably lovely this time of year, like all times of year? I mean, mm. I think we're, the swimminess of time is, is part of how we're built and it's really not well suited to our, our desires for formulas and to really figure out like, how do we button this up? You know, I, I do understand the power of just be present, but I also, <laughs> and I, I think a lot of people are like this. I live also with the power of anticipation. That's a very <sighs> meaningful thing in my world, which brings us back kind of to that tick, tick, tick that you were talking about, right? It's, <sighs> there is something else and I'm, yeah, you know, whether it, it is that trip, right? Yeah. Or that evening I'm going to spend with my mother or whatever it is. It's so hard yeah. to go from moment to moment in the present and let go of that anticipation because anticipation is yes. important too. Yes, it is. It is because we are not good in a box. We are not. And sometimes a day feels like a very small box. I the version I have been trying to kick myself out of was my precancer self was always living in middle distance. It was always something else, something around the corner, another trip, another plan, another. And uh, and then in cancer, I got very good at um, the smell of my son's hair and counting freckles and being able to be surprised by the day as opposed to just kind of a, being a sort of human bulldozer that creates like the shortest distance between two ideas. I think the, I think part of the, the shock of life is that so often we can't just imagine that the, the, the moment will present the enoughness. We just, it, it is a kind of act of courage and hope. Like, yes, we face, we face a day in a life that is uncertain, but and this honestly, I think is a miracle I've experienced over and over again, is that sometimes we just have to jump into the next hard thing in the next day and the next moment. And we have to believe that there are enough good meals and people who love us and like small miracles there to, to catch us and, and give us that feeling of, of more because we, we need it because we're not just 
you know, we're not just breath and calories. Like we need these feelings of being precious and filling up the the batteries that that matter most. So yeah, that has been, I, I think that to me is always the miracle of living is how do we get any enoughness at all? And when it happens, can we just sit with it a minute? And you've learned how to do that on days when, let's say, that date that you've got the blood work and it's going to be a very long day and you'll be kind of absorbed again in the medical <laughs> industrial complex. Yes, um, yes. I think I hear yeah. you saying you've learned how to trust that there will be, as you said, love and good meals and time with your child and you know, yeah. warmth in your family beyond that. And so to just yeah. accept this is the thing to go through to get to that other side? Is that what you're well, saying? I, yeah, I guess I just think life takes so much courage and we're just, we're always feeling like we're just jumping into the unknown. And I have been caught a million times, mostly by other people and also realizing that, um, American individualism is is really a, a terrible, <laughs> really terrible idea. And if we ever want to reconsider that ideology, I feel like now would be like a, like a really helpful time to do that. Uh, but I, that my feeling of hope for me is also just that even if my enoughness is not always enough, if my if my days are my is limited, that I, it's the hope then for all of us is the is that I kind of have to give the things I love also to that same future, that I have to trust that even if it's not me, that it's my community and people who love me will pour into the people I love. So sometimes the hope is not just for me, it's for all of us. Side note on American individualism. I I can't resist (laughs) because I love to talk about this and you're a historian. (laughs) Why is that such a powerful Mm. myth of what it means to be American, when we clearly see and know yeah. that we are nothing without our community. Mm. Well, and if we've so, ever seen it before, it's the pandemic ta- teaching yeah. us that lesson anew. Go ahead. Yeah, that we are connected by a million invisible puppet strings to other people. And that, I mean, even just the notion of public health, that we're not our own. We all always belong to each other. But I mean, it's been... American individualism has been the dominant ideology in part because it, it, it teaches us a lesson about how to try that feeling of agency, that intoxicating wind in your sails kind of momentum. It lets people and nations give an account for innovation and effort and getting back up. The limits of it though are, of course, that usually, I mean, in any human life, we really only if we're lucky, get a couple seasons where that is even feasible. The rest of the time, we're <laughs> we're being held by others. We are between things, between relationships, between losses, between you know, between careers and hopes, and then and then we're at the floppy end of our <laughs> of our lives. So, I mean, sustainably, it's. Uh, it doesn't account for our fragility or our interdependence. But um, I think the the reason why it's so tempting is because it's always, you know, if if the pain or our fear feels so great, then it, it lets us believe that at least we are the solution. So to say, guys, let's just like simmer down a little on the on the 
hyper agency, hyper invincibility stories for a lot of people, they, it, it, it makes them worry that we'll lapse into despair or fatalism. And I think we can carve out a, a gentler place in the middle. Yeah. Uh, I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to my Friday book show, and I'm having a conversation that goes in unexpected places, thankfully, with Kate Bowler. Her new book is titled No Cure for Being Human and Other Truths I Need to Hear. And we're having a discussion this morning about the book and other big ideas. Um, Kate, would you read from a chapter that you've titled YOLO, You Only Live once. And maybe you would say a bit about kind of where you were as you were working through some of the ideas behind the chapter. Sure. I guess I, um, so I'd had my very surprising cancer diagnosis and then I was trying to figure out what the right, I, I was studying all the, the wisdom and limitations of all these different formulas, like you know, be present or, or pure pragmatism or just do what you love. And in this one, I was thinking about the, 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 the power of, um, of the YOLO feeling of like really being caught up in the moment, but, and that maybe I (laughs) learned some things and others I didn't. (laughs) So here goes. The terrible gift of a terrible illness is that it has, in fact, taught me to live in the moment. Nothing but this day matters. The warmth of this crib, the sound of his hysterical giggling. And when I look closely at my life, I realize that I am not just learning to seize the day. In my finite life, the mundane has begun to sparkle. The things I love, the things I should love, become clearer, brighter. Burdened by the past, preoccupied by the present, or worried about the future, I had failed to appreciate the inestimable gift of a single minute. I didn't realize that one second you can feel like chaff and the next you can be at a wedding reception and your friend Allie is gliding across the dance floor in a drink cart pushed by her husband who's yelling, we're never going to die. He started out saying it ironically, but by the end of the night, we are starting to believe. When I was first hospitalized with cancer, my friends sent me a photo taken of us that night. We're in party dresses, arms around one another, mussy hair, tears streaking mascara down our cheeks from a night gone a little wild. Maybe for a second there, I could have sworn that the universe slowed and stopped just long enough to watch me catch my breath. Moments like these felt transcendent. The past and the future experienced together in moments where I can see a flicker of eternity. Time is not an arrow anymore, and heaven is here for a second when I could drown in the beauty of what I have, but also what may never be. Hope for the future feels like a kind of arsenic that needs to be carefully administered, or it can poison the sacred work of living in the present. Taking my medication, asking about a friend's terrible boyfriend, and inhaling the smell of my son's skin as he sleeps next to me. I want to be alive until I am not. Kate Bowler's new book, uh, and she just read a chapter from it for us, is called No Cure for Being Human. You said something uh, interesting in an interview about fragility that I think applies to, to what we were just talking about. 
you said, we haven't normalized our neediness and our fragility. It's going to take a lot of work to undo the cultural shame we experience when we say out loud, I don't think I can do this. Yeah. You know, I thought about how that is in such opposition to this culture of triumphalism, not just (laughs) I'm going to need my community around me to help me, but also just saying, you know, just every message that says power through. I mean, you, you're mm-hmm. much more acquainted with this than I think I am. And I, I sense in that interview that you were, you were working your way through this and yeah. trying to figure out yeah. what it means if we say, I don't think I can do this. Yeah, what if I can't? I it it took me a, a a long time to realize that one of the primary experiences I've had being <laughs> I don't mean to be facetious but to say like to to being a tragedy meaning like a problem that can't be fixed mm-hmm. is um is how embarrassing it feels when you know there's a there's an intractable problem and then you keep having it and then everyone has already had advice and suggestions and documentaries and ideas and then it's just you again with your same horrible problem that the the shame of not knowing um what to do with problems we can't solve and then for how long we must endure them uh the intractability of our lives i hadn't uh i i i didn't realize how much emotional yeah whenever i see someone um have a an account of their limits that doesn't look like it's also laced with shame. I, I think it's just one of the natural legacies of our positive thinking culture is when we're told a million times that every setback is just a set up and that the, you know, the winners, like they might get docked down, but they'll always get back up. Like we're just supposed to be human whack-a-mole. I think it's, it's really scary when we, our lives are actually toppled by something and, and we, cause the truth is we need a minute to say, what, what if, what if I can't do this without that kind of honesty, it makes it even harder to try. You know, I've wondered how the medical community absorbs this because there's a place where, Mm. you know, if you have doctors that you trust, they're probably going to throw everything they can throw at the problem as you say, and it might be a problem that can't be solved. I also think that's a space where it's very difficult to say. I don't know if I'm ready for this or I can do it or what what it's going to be on the other side. You've had a lot of experience in with with medicine. Um, What would it mean, do you think, if our, our medical professionals were more attuned to this. <laughs> then I think it's it's so astute that to 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 talk about like triumphalistic medicine and victory narratives, and certainly on the patient side, the victory narratives of you know beating cancer and fighting, and when in, in truth, so much of our work as patients is simply to to endure. And on the, and the other side, uh, I've now had so much more experience being able to to talk to healthcare practitioners who are really struggling with that question, which is, in, in what way could I learn to account for people's finitude 
for their limitations? Would I be failing them as a as a as a doctor or as a nurse if I if if I helped shape um, more language for for this person's limits? And I think part of the I remember doing an interview with um, Sunita Puri, who's a who wrote a beautiful book called That Good Night about palliative care, and she said how. Um, that in that that that's the sort of challenge of that discipline is lovingly coming alongside other healthcare providers and saying, if we account for quality of life, how do we not imagine palliative care as giving up, as surrender, but as um, including this person's humanity as part of the variables involved? I mean, you. I'm so glad you wrote about your experience with different physicians and different treatments the way you did because you give us a view of of this language of the experience of being human and where it bumps up against <laughs> the language of medicine yeah and i mean I, there are times when you find yourself kind of puncturing their retreat, their safe retreat behind statistics and diagnostic models. Yeah. By I think at one point you even say, I want to live, tell me I'm going to live. This is not to put blame on, you know, on medical professionals and the people we rely on, but. (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. Because I think what I, I mean, I think what I asked was, um, like just just tell me if I'm gonna live through the summer, because I was always trying so hard not to them wait like like live under the weight of my desire for certainty. I but it felt so difficult to um to to reach across this thick barrier between patient and doctor and say, um, I under like it felt like we were untranslatable. To each other because they had a they had a um, a framework for talking to patients that um, that offered a kind of pre- that precision without meaning. Like when I was told um, you have a fourteen percent chance of survival, and he said, "No, no." He, he said, um, "I said, am I going to? I just no one has told me if I'm going to live." And he said, "I." He's very reluctant to answer. And then he said, "Well, I can only respond to that by describing to you the median survival rate of people." With your type of cancer, which is truly, I'm sure, a very uh, reasonable thing to say if it meant if if it meant anything to me, which it didn't. And um, and he said, well, I said, well, okay. And he said, well, well, with a person with your diagnosis, you have a 14 percent chance of survival. And I, I could see him heading for the door before I just reached out and grabbed his hand, and I realized, oh my gosh, I don't even know I've. I think that he has a number in his head when he's saying the word survival. Like we're not even, because in my mind, I hear the words 14% and I can, all I'm figuring out is exactly how old my my son is and how long, like, will I see him? My first thought is like, will I get to his kindergarten graduation? And in his mind, he has um, the weight of a whole framework that I is totally inaccessible to me. So all I ended up saying was something like, oh, oh you better be holding my hand if you're going to say things like that. I, I had a conversation recently with uh, N. West Moss about her new memoir, Flesh and Blood. And, and yeah. 
She writes a lot about what it is like to enter, you know, the medical community and kind of be absorbed by that and have such a difficult time with this translation that you're talking yeah. about, that you talk about. And she is, she writes about being prepped for pretty major surgery. And these are the moments, you know, before she's about to go in. And I just wanted to read a couple of lines to you because I, I think this may resonate with you. The guy with the dark hair and green scrubs who is fussing around is near my hand. And I say very quietly, hello. And although he's wearing a mask, I can see that he smiles at me with real warmth mm. as though he'd forgotten I was there. And he is so pleased to see me. Yeah. He looks very busy but I can't help myself. Will you hold my hand, I ask him. He stops what he's doing and slips his gloved but warm hand into mine and pauses and smiles again. He is better than anesthesia. <laughs> That's so good. Oh, Carrie, okay. That's so good. I, um, you know, before when we were talking about the, the miracle of a day, like, will, will there be enough? There's the, the moment for me has always been when everybody says goodbye, you're being prepped for a surgery that is uncertain and terrifying. And then you feel the lurch of the cart, like the, the gurney that you're on and they, and you're off and you're seeing, you know, the, the, the dizziness of, of life and a hospital moving around you. And then you're in a cold surgical theater. And at that very moment, before they put the mask on, is the scariest moment of my life every time. And in that moment, all I want is the one miracle which almost always happens, which is that I can say to, it's usually like the, the prep nurse and just say, um, hey, do you mind just holding my hand? And like the firmness and warmth of somebody, that feels to me like the miracle that you can't predict. You can never have written an email ahead and be like, hi, I'm so, I'm really scared about life. Could someone be there to hold my hand? But when it happens, it feels like an absolute miracle. Just the great act of uh, humanity that we give each other. You've just, you've just inspired a, a thought. Um, what if hospitals actually hired handholders? <laughs> That's your yes. role. <laughs> you come in exactly. in the, you know, exactly. if the patient wants yeah. it. I, I really. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm thinking about the baby snugglers that they have. I'm just. I, uh, I have a friend in in pediatric oncology, and he said one of you know that he chose pediatric oncology because it was the place where he could assume that people's humanity was a part of their was always in the room that they knew that they could openly acknowledge that their patient was scared that they had a like um a buoyancy like a a, a yeah a natural limberness about the way that they could assume that their their patient was a little person and um mm -hmm. i have found moments where uh <laughs> The moments of 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 real humanity, I um, and you can see it in people's eyes. I have this one anesthesiologist who always leans over right next to my face, and I know his name. It's Doctor Moon, and I'm sure I've only seen him for thirty seconds at a time, but those thirty <laughs> seconds are all mine. Does he know that? Do you think how meaningful that is? 
I hope so. You never get to see the people again, but I always, when I go back in, I was like, hey, could you just pass, pass my best regards to Dr. Moon? He's doing a really good job. <laughs> right. But what you sense is he sees you. He does. You are not just the next case, right? Yeah. Yeah. He knows my name. He looked at my chart. I mean, the he's because he's the gatekeeper to anesthesiology, right? It's just the, it's the gatekeeper to how much, if any, pain you'll be in. And uh, I think that's, I mean, it's a wonderful metaphor for for all the work we do when we have to decide if our humanity is required, is in those small things we really do save each other's lives. You wrote about this experience of, you know, finding out about the illness and, you know, coming into this this moment of life where every moment is going to feel infused with purpose. I need to do this and I need to do this and this is how I'm going to get through this. And then you enter, and I know we talked about this the last time we had a conversation, this kind of no man's land of I'm, I have a durable illness, right? Yeah. 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 And you, you say, uh, about this experience then of, of kind of feeling that purpose drift away. These moments of transcendence have been scattered everywhere like breadcrumbs, right? Those moments where you are so focused and, mm-hmm. and what it means to lose that. And, and I, I started thinking that I think for some people who have been in combat zones, it's, it's yeah. very difficult to understand the experience of, of somebody who's, who's been through that, but that maybe that's what this feels like and then coming back to ordinary life. I don't know. How would you describe it? Oh wow. Yeah. I've had the same I've had the same thought about um about this sort of uh, feeling of intense precarity. I, I did a weird so last time I was in the hospital, I sort of asked all the ER doctors about that. It's like, do you feel a bright mm. clarity about the stakes of your work? And is that is that part of why you do this? And they were like, oh yeah, we're <laughs> we're intense like that. <laughs> that. That made me really happy. But I uh it's a it's a funny thing to switch into different experiences of time. And my friend Luke kind of gave me better language for it because he said that is the, the 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 brightness that I was describing, he said is is part of tragic time. The the sense that um you know the day is the day is sort of both endless and too short and you, and, and it could, it couldn't possibly be Tuesday and, and inboxes don't matter. And it has a, a clarifying, like a love becomes obvious and pain and fear become obvious. And there's just no small talk in tragic time. Right. right. I love that. The, all the conventions fall away and you get to kind of be the person who stands up and flips the table and is like, that's it. And, uh, but then the rest is so much of the rest is, and he said this, um, so he was teasing me. He's like, well, but the rest of it is ordinary time, Kate. That's the time of, you know, inboxes and sowing and reaping and, you know, filing paperwork and, um, not being a, a, a jerk during faculty meetings. And I think allowing ourselves <laughs> to toggle between them without making every moment so existentially fraught that we can't, we can't know that sometimes it's like shifting shifting gears. Luke is a wise man. He pops up in the book. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's by, maybe you, by the how, what's your, English accent. Yeah. What, what, what's your relationship with him? What, how oh, deep he's a, does your friendship go back? 
Oh, he's a, a friend from the Divinity School. He's uh, also a professor. So uh, I, I do this when I have problems as I kind of wander up and down the hallway having existential questions and concerns. So almost everyone that I mention in the book is having like, like giving me an understanding of hope, giving me an understanding of what meaning and calling in our work might be like, or giving me better language from time. That's all just because I, I happen to have very do-gooding uh, colleagues who uh, abuse no, clergy privileges a lot. You know, they just like always have a clerical <laughs> collar and pop in after hours when they're not really allowed. <laughs> uh, you're listening to a conversation with Kate Bowler. Her new book is called No Cure for Being Human and Other Truths I Need to Hear. Um, and I'm Carrie Miller. I listen to your podcast and Aww. you interview some blazingly brilliant people. <laughs> and I love how unpredictable your conversations are. I mean, that that is the ride of listening to Aww. a discussion that you're doing. Um, I, I guess I've wondered who who the last guest was or whether you can think of a singular experience where, you know, you had to you had to sit back. You didn't have the next you know, blazing question to ask. You really had to sit back and take it in. Yeah. Yes. I um, had this really, there's a, a, a pastor professor uh, named Jerry Sitzer, and he wrote a book 20 years ago called something like, um, it was, it was, it was like a grace discover, discovered or something like that. It was like a, a play on a C.S. Lewis title. And it had been a classic for people who, had, who were trying to understand grief. But this was 20 years on. And he was describing the experience of having lost his wife and his daughter and his mom in the same car accident he was in that just wiped out three generations of women. And, and that he had to go home then and still parent the children that he had and to move forward with the life he uh he didn't choose but he said something that kind of uh <laughs> i think i think when he said it i was like jerry i feel like you're stabbing me in the, in the heart in the heart right now because if i you know one of the things we both share is we we really both are trying to undo the the desire for formulaic language around suffering and mm-hmm. and that there is no um you know there's no tidy solution but if i'm being completely honest i would have said well a tidy solution to my problem would be a miraculous and sudden cure for cancer mm-hmm. and then i you know and then problem solved and he said um well the dirty little secret about miracles is that they're only temporary and i needed a minute because he is right that every every solution is also just a reprieve, like a, just a like just a a pause for a second before the rest of our finitude has to be faced. And I, uh, you know, it was it was really nice hearing that from someone who was, you know, he's seventy one. He was further further down the road of the same questions. And uh, mm-hmm. when he said that, it took apart my last sort of formula I had for how to fix my life. As in, there will be a miracle. Wouldn't that and be everything nice? will be different on the other side of it. And then maybe I could 
you know, there's just this fantasy always. And I always, like, you know, it's probably, it is why I write about it because I, I think I'm just so, I'm so tempted for all to just go back. Wouldn't it be nice if I could just go back to the person that was certain and, you know, good at being casual and didn't always feel existentially fraught, you know? And, and I think when he just said, well, this is, this is, this is life as it is, my dear. I, uh, Mm -hmm. that was a good hard word. Do you two have the sense that we are getting better at the language of grief? Or do you still hear, you know, the, the comforting <laughs> tropes? Oh, no, we're, the, we're terrible. Ac- yeah. <laughs> the acknowledgement that this is insufficient, but it's too hard to figure out. What is sufficient? No. You're laughing. No. Why? No, everything's getting worse. <laughs> I, I really, I swear to you. I oh, mean, no. it's everything in terms of in terms of the exhausting futurism of our language. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. have just returned to different convenient explanations. I, for, um, I mean, the new version is less explicitly Christian, for instance, but it's. Um, a blonde lady with a book called "The Universe Has Your Back," or it's, it is the, it is truly the good vibes. It was, it really is the good vibes only theology. <laughs> or the kids, the kids these days are talking about manifesting, which is just another word for speaking mm. truths into the world that that come back to us like boomerangs, and therefore we're we're right back in the driver's seat. So no, I am losing every fight I'm having <laughs> about trying to oh, wow. accept our finitude, but. No, you are talking to a a woman who will not win this argument. Yeah, you know, but I, but I think the reason people want to hear from you and you know, otherwise people in grief is we are reaching for we want this. I think we know yeah. that this is insufficient. Uh, yeah. you know, I I think I think people will hear this and you know, relate to something in their own lives in which language was just fell short. Yeah. My approach falls short. So, so, so what, here's the contradiction again. So what, (laughs) what is this? Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. And I, I think that it is, it's the reality of of not being able to fix our lives, but only to live them. Sometimes it can just, it comes to us in a season. Usually, sometimes we age into it. And, but most often I think it just happens to us because we, we come to the end of ourselves. And that is, um, the problem is then is this, the season of rebuilding, if we get one, that's, that's usually when we go back to believing the same lies about durability and perfectibility. And I just have to get back to better than before. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves saying things like best life now as we try on a dress for a party. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. uh, because we, um, because best life now, good, better, best, it feels like going back to that indestructible, wonderful self. And holy crap, do I really understand how good that feeling is. It's just that it accidentally creates that whole new period of disorientation when we just can't maintain that high of, of pure control and pure agency. It's, 
it's usually a lovely window of of either hard work or luck or mm-hmm. just beautiful happenstance and then but then we need that soft we need that softer account of our own uh, precarity that's why i just hope people could put it like on a sliding scale is like are you in a season of very few choices great you are <laughs> i'm so sorry and this is a season of low agency are you in a season where you feel like you're on stilts and every step takes you five steps and you're taking Peloton classes and someone is telling you that you're just going to hit your personal record. Congratulations. That is also a season, but it is of, of high agency. And just if we can locate the seasons of our lives on a sliding scale, I think we'll do, we'll do better than our culture tells us. Why? I just, I really love the way you put that. I mean, it's when I, when I said in the introduction, whether we are, you know, think we are bending towards bounty or Mm -hmm. we're slipping into scarcity. We spend so little time thinking about what those seasons mean. Yeah. Your book brought me into a space to think, I've got to live my, no, it did not, (laughs) not, I've got to live my best life. I've got, you know, 30 years left or whatever. No, it really made me think, uh, if these are rarer, increasingly rarer, cherished moments. Yeah. What fills them? That's good. Right? Yeah. And we take the window that we're in and we only get down to a kind of honesty that feels unacceptable. I mean, I, that's why I love making these little like appendices because I've been trying to think about like, what are these little shorthand things we say? Cause I just want to get homicidal Every time I'm not allowed to be minorly disappointed or scared about, you know, about a world that is uncertain or because the, the trite versions are, um, well, you know, no regrets or, well, don't worry, nothing is wasted as if we don't lose things every day or going back to everything is possible. I, uh, I love it when we could just find like, which is your beautiful delicate language, which is just makes me cherish the crap out of you, Carrie, is mm. <laughs> if we just pick a, like gentler, more delicate words for this and just say, maybe I'm in a great window right now. I will, I will step forward, it, but it all, but it all takes courage, all of it, the good and the bad. Is there a book, uh, Kate, on, on your bookshelves, um, more dog-eared, more loved, more Hmm. you know, more opened as you're, as you're wrestling with these ideas, maybe you're, maybe it, it helps you get into a writing mode. I'm, I'm yeah. just curious about what you reach for when you really need honesty. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I do love, um, I do love memoir for that reason because I, I love the granularity of people's loves. So I there's a book I really love by Heather Lanier. She has a book about um raising a, a child that has um a like non-typical um genetics and she uh yeah, raising a rare girl is about loving the kid you have without either labeling it a a tragedy or a triumph and to, to live in the sort of non-inspired truth mm. about like, well, these are the people I love. And honestly, I find this so funny every time I'm, 
I was doing it. I can't remember. It was sometime in the middle of the pandemic and it was like, um, it's like a mom's magazine or something. And they were like, wanted me to say something really inspirational about, about, about momming or, and I was like, oh no, no, it's our loves that, it's our loves that, are, that burden us. And they're like, oh no, wait, wait, I think you mean that our joy in our lives. I was like, no, 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 we're, I mean, it's our loves that like, that make us worry that we're drowning or that we're, because we, because our lives need to bear up the weight of them. And that's why it's so hard to be a person is, is that we're, we're tethered by all this love. And they're like, oh, we, we don't like that very, we don't like that very much. <laughs> Do people expect that of you? Do you think maybe people <laughs> think, who have not read the books or yeah. <sighs> I you know cuz I think people are reaching for for you know when we go into a season of pain we get scared and then we just want someone who did it. So tell me like you've had cancer forever and you almost died and like I'm either then a miracle or an inspiration. I think the the limits of that though is um all pain is un, unbearably lonely. It's a lie to set it up that somebody else is always out there doing it better. <laughs> the truth is what we really need is like honesty about our resources. Maybe we are doing it by ourselves. Maybe we don't have enough friends. So setting up these kind of heroes prevents us from from feeling like we're we're we also just like my life, like everyone else's life is is really cobbled together by very soft material and that delicate feeling is there's no dur- there's no durable version of this. There's no real inspirational version. There's just uh, there's the pain of it, and then there's the beauty of it in our stupid, dumb, gorgeous lives. Kate, I, I'd like to close with some music, and I I wondered if there is a a piece that is meaningful to you in any <laughs> in any context. Carrie, the only ones I can think of are like my dumb, beautiful cheese ball ones. Then now I'm going to say something really embarrassing. Are you, it's it's not good. Are you ready? It's bad. I'm ready. <laughs> when I first got sick, there was this like teen heartthrob song called Life of the Party by Shawn Mendes. <laughs> and uh, it was probably just about his love of a girl in a cafe. But there was this, um, there was just one line that said, uh, uh, take your shot. Um, something you won't. It's, I thought it said like you won't be ready, but hearts are gonna break. And I, 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 I played it a million times because I thought like that's it. That's the way forward. We love and and it's gonna break our dumb hearts. Kate, thank you very you much are, for the conversation. You are better than everyone always carries. Let me get a notary to put that in writing. Oh my gosh. You are absolutely spectacular. Thank you for this. Wow. Thank you so much. Kate Bowler's new book is titled No Cure for Being Human and Other Truths I Need to Hear. I'm telling you to take your shot in my face, yeah, yeah. Hearts are gonna break. We don't have the time to be sorry. So baby, we the love of the fire. Thank you. I love you guys. Thank you so much.